Welcome to the Yogic Meditations podcast, where today we're talking about the neuroscience of mindfulness training. In the last 20 years and more recently, the field of contemplative neuroscience has shed some light not only on the areas of the brain that control our attention and focus, but on some important ways that meditation can enhance our quality of life. We'll come away from this conversation with the understanding of the biology of attention, as well as practical tools for meditation in everyday life. First off, meditation, let's get clear here, it's not about clearing the mind. And that term gets used a lot, like just clear it out. It's not possible, it's not going to happen, it's not the way your brain was designed. But you start understanding that in this act of knowing where your mind is and training it to come back over and over again, you gain a lot, well, you gain almost in some sense this super capacity to have more control in not just the way your mind functions, but in your life. The capacity to be present, to take in an experience without adding a story to it or reacting or editorializing. It allows you to learn, absorb, and discern so much more clearly and effective than you would otherwise. This kind of ability through these methods can change not only the moment you're in, but in the trajectory of an entire life. And I could list the many benefits people receive from meditation. There are so many from testimonials and through neuroscientific observation. But I really want to take a look at how the lens of modern neuroscience has explored how with meditation, we train our way or the way our brain works. So we are mindful on demand. So let's talk neural circuits. And you may tune out for a moment because that's maybe not (laughs) something that you uh, connect with, but I will describe it in pretty general terms and with some details because I know there's some of you out there who really would like to dig deeper into what the exact uh, connectivity is. Okay, so there's two main types of circuits that are actual networks in your brain, my brain and everybody's brain that we need to think about. And the first one is called the default mode network. The default mode network is this network of brain areas that is active when we're not doing anything. We're just sitting there idle at rest. And now it's very hard to not think about anything, but when you're not engaged in any specific task, you're not driving, you're not, not watching YouTube or trying to study or trying to listen. You're just sitting there letting your brain kind of go wherever it wants to go. Your default mode network underlies that state of mind. The other set of circuits that we're going to think about here and talk about are the task networks, the networks of the brain that make you goal oriented. You've got to achieve something or at least trying to achieve something. And those are completely different set of brain areas. Although the default network and these task networks are communicating with each other and they're doing that all the time in very interesting ways. A consistent meditation practice over time will change the functioning of these networks and the structures of your brain. Even during the first meditation practice, this happens to your brain, but after it defaults, air quotes, defaults back to its typical way of processing. But over time, as you establish a consistent practice, these new ways of paying attention increasingly become the default, which adds up to better brain functionality. And uh, there's, there's various practices that are intended to strengthen and improve this coordination between your brain networks. And they are to strengthen, like it's just say your ability to direct and keep your focus, to notice what's going on and to really manage your behavior 
and your goals, what you've got to take care of today. And much of what I'm sharing in this podcast is inspired and supported by two particular neuroscientists. Just a little quick background on them. These two intelligent women, they're both Western trained scientists that discovered meditation and yoga to help themselves in their own lives. And as scientists were amazed at the unexpected changes that they personally experienced. From there, they redirected their studies to explore why that happened, why meditation works. And these two uh, women are leaders in this emerging new area of contemplative neuroscience. Maybe it's because they're practitioners like myself and many of you who are uh, listening in here. In addition, uh, they are also these modern scientists in the fields of neurobiology and psychology that I feel the impact of their work is, is the wisdom of the discerning minds of dedicated yogis. This is something that I really connect to and something that I practice personally. So that could definitely be um, what, how I connect to this possibly. That um, They though, they're so passionate along with their work and of course of other brilliant scientists um, They present mindfulness practices in a more objective and accessible framework. And this is helping create positive changes uh, in societies um, around the world even. So let me just mention uh, these two women, Sarah Lazar, PhD. Let's give you a rundown. She's associate researcher in the psychiatry department at MassGen hospital, and an assistant professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. And her focus, uh, her research uh, focus is to explain the neural mechanisms underlying the beneficial effects of yoga and meditation. And this is, she was the first one back in 2005 who really uh, took this to the laboratory. And since then, it's, you know, exponential how it's grown. And her amazing brain scans show that meditation can actually change the size of key regions in our brain that improve our memory, make us more compassionate, empathetic, uh, make us more resilient under stress. And uh, we'll detail a little bit more of this um, a little later. And Amishi Jha at the University, uh, University of Miami, where she's a professor of psychology and also director of contemplative neuroscience and also author of the recently published book, Peak Mind. She, her progression of her work has been trying to find out uh, time efficiency solutions so that everybody can receive the benefits of a mindfulness practice. Because sometimes maybe you've seen that it is, you know, you've seen you go off to a retreat and you do this for yourself and you come back. But in this modern time, you know, people really can't spend much time, uh, it seems, anyway, to get away for something like that, let alone commit time in their everyday life. And in this podcast, I will share her science-based tool for meditation in everyday life that is quite accessible. Um, and we'll get to that. Uh, here in a little bit, but let's kick this off. Okay, mindfulness is related to attention. What is attention? Attention is perception. It's how we're perceiving the things around us, the sensory world, and we're sensing things all the time. But you're only paying attention to some of those. And the ones you're paying attention to are your perceptions. So we have sensations and perceptions. The ones that we're paying attention to are forming our life. What we pay attention to is our life. And to lead full and successful lives, we need to use our attention to open up and really perceive what is occurring right in front of us. A little later, I will detail these three systems of attention 
that we all have, and meditation engages all three. And just like training your muscles in your body with repetitions of exercises, like a push-up to strengthen your body, meditation or mindfulness training is a workout that strengthens your mind. So if you start meditating and you think, why do I keep getting distracted? I am not good at this. That's just a part of it. Had you ever, have you ever tried to just command your mind to be still, calm down? And how'd that go? <laughs> Distraction is not only a modern problem, it's actually a human problem. It's always existed. Maybe social media and all of our uh, technological advances have made that more of a challenge, but it's always existed. It's the nature of our brain. If you're alive, awake, conscious, it said that about half of your waking moments, your attention is not going to be on the task at hand. Um, so let's put the kibosh that if your mind wanders, there's something wrong with you or there's something unique about you. It's just that it's everybody. So if I've lost your attention at this point, I understand. I'm human too. <laughs> I forgive you. If you're under stress, which is why many people are meditating in the first place, there's many tools, possibly positivity tactics, or even suppressing uh, that are out there, but they're not effective because they really they suck up your mental resources and... Stress goes up and mood gets worse. You're burning your cognitive fuel and depleting your ability to, to function and cope. So the question then would be, what does work to control our attention? And maybe you already know the answer is meditation. In the book, great book by the way, Altered Traits, the authors Dan Goleman and Richie Davidson, they talk about the role of attention. And they use the operative phrase, transformation of consciousness, which they then named altered traits. <clears throat> and they contended that hypnosis, unlike meditation, produced primarily state effects as opposed to trait effects, as with meditation. They talk about the basic confusion of this fascination with the altered states you can achieve from meditation. Um, you may even hear about those states being achieved through psychedelics. And, and all of that is missing the true point of practice. To transform ourselves in lasting ways day to day is the true point of practice. They actually said, after the high goes, you're still the same schmuck you were before. <laughs> and that's, they're talking about the state. Uh, mindfulness is creating uh, a change in your brain so that you now, um, you now are this way innately. It's your default. That's... I've been, using this word mindfulness pretty casually so far, and maybe that's something that you also have heard uh, just on a daily basis if you are in that world, or maybe you're in standing in line at Whole Foods and you see so many uh, uh, headlines on these magazines talking about mindfulness. So it's a very current term and people love to use it. So let's define mindfulness. Uh, the contemporary view of the concept, uh, there really is no single, even though it's popular culture increasingly becoming part of popular culture, there's, there's no single correct or authoritative version. And there's many interpretations. In you know, mainstream literature, <clears throat> Mindfulness, let me get some water here, has been described as a form of attention that is purposeful, non-reactive, non-judgmental, and in the present moment. 
There's a historical model for training the mind, and that has similar goals to the contemporary Western model, both interested in reducing suffering, improving quality of life, enhancing positive emotions. And I will refer to Mishi Jha now, who we will really get into her findings and uh, her method proven scientific tool to help us all on a daily basis. She says it's a mental mode, meaning it's a way of making the mind, and that mindfulness meditation is a set of practices you can do to cultivate this mode. So what's the mode? Mindfulness is a mode of paying attention to a present moment experience without, here we go, big one, conceptual elaboration or emotional reactivity. What is conceptual elaboration? Thinking. It's just thinking. So we're paying attention to present moment experience without telling a story about it. No thinking. No editorializing. It, it's establishing a kind of core strength. But even more than that, a specific set of processes. Um, a simple set of practices we'll, just, we'll review here, like breath awareness. It's actually training you to engage all three systems of attention. There's the core strength you're going to need, but then there's certain moves that you have to practice over and over again to be able to use them in that particular way, context, like any sport. You need to be physically fit and healthy, but every sport needs specific skills that have to be trained. You're just like being strong and agile in general is not going to be helpful. There's more moves that you need to make and train and be real efficient with. And that's what I think mindfulness practices, all the varieties of them, that's what they're offering. Learning these moves How does it do this? Meditation, how does it do this? This workout that strengthens your mind. There are scientifically validated benefits. And on that list is that meditation enhances your ability to pay attention. We know that whenever we engage in a behavior over and over again, that this results in a change in your brain. And this is what is referred to as neuroplasticity. With mindfulness training, neuroimaging shows that the area of the brain important for working memory and executive decision-making became larger. So working memory, executive decision-making, we'll discuss that here uh, a little bit more in depth. There's definitely other areas of the brain that are positively affected too, but in this conversation, we are specifically interested in the, what the function of attention is as it relates to mindfulness training. Take attention. Think about it over time. Our conversation right now, you're using your working memory. I'm saying stuff for comprehending it. You're probably having a thought and you are a nice person, you're gonna listen to the best of your ability, and until there's a right moment for you to talk, you'll then comment. You just use your working memory like a, like a temporary space. The, the terminology actually is temporary scratch space working memory. And it's really not about the memory part, it's about the working part. It's sometimes referred to a whiteboard in your mind. Um, although one with a very short time frame, uh, maybe 60 seconds, maybe actually 30 seconds to 60 seconds max. So as you're experiencing information, as you're paying attention to it, you write on this temporary scratch space and it it, the ink starts to fade. It's like someone leaned up against your whiteboard and just like kind of smudged it and you can't really read it anymore. 
you use it for everything. So if you don't have it, that's a real disadvantage. You use it for everything. Decision making, thinking, planning. Right now, you're using it. For example, what do you typically do when you meet someone? And you need to remember their name. Maybe you repeat it over and over again. You can ask them again to remind you. But that's not consequential. There's times where if you didn't remember something that was just told you, like, like their name, it would be consequential. You, you're on the phone and you're talking with the service person and then you get disconnected and then you've got to find that person again. There's just like, that's just a quick example of uh, needing to remember something that simple or even a phone number someone gives you and you repeat it and you want to put it in your phone so you can uh, find it later. So that's the working memory and it's from your attention and your perception. Remember your perceptions are coming from what you're paying attention to in your sensory world and it inputs it on the board but you can also call it up from long-term memory. If I asked you what you did this weekend or had for breakfast this morning, you can probably tell me. So what you essentially did was call it up from your long-term memory, it gets written on your whiteboard, and now you use your attention to kind of read what's on the whiteboard and say, oh, I had an omelet for breakfast, or I went and saw a friend down in Miami this weekend. So working memory, so important, it's used for both the input of information and in the extraction from our long-term memory. Very, very powerful brain system tied to intelligence, tied to emotion regulation, tied to decision-making, everything. And it starts falling apart under high stress. It, it the amount of attention you have, it remains constant, but it just gets used differently. And really, maybe not how you want it to be used. Um, because the brain has way more input than it can process. So we're sampling things and bits and, bits and pieces. And the, well, in cognitive neuroscience, this is called load theory. The load on your attention is high. Your attentional resources are focused, sort of like driving in really bad weather. So hopefully you're really focused on the task at hand. There's no accident. And then when the load is low, you have attentional resources available. You can listen to music, daydream, plan, enjoy the scenery. Before we get into the actual practices of how to really enhance our abilities in these ways, I mentioned there are three systems of attention. So let's take a look at those now. First uh, system of attention, it's like a flashlight. Attention is focus is like a flashlight. Wherever you're directing your attention, in this way, you're privileging that content. And to find your focus, the first skill you need to develop is to notice when you're not paying attention, when your attention and flashlight has wandered away from the task at hand. So if you're focusing on my voice right now, you can hear it much more clearly. And then you hear the background noise or the refrigerator running. Um, and, it, and what's really cool is that you can willfully point your flashlight externally or internally. Right now, can you feel the palms of your hands? Yes, is likely your answer. Were you thinking about that or even aware of the palms of your hands before I just asked that? Probably no. The flashlight can go to internally, internal bodily sensations, and this uh, is referred to as interoception. This system 
of attention as a flashlight, um, a cone of focus is called the alerting network. And so you can choose where to put it, but the flashlight will also get pulled to, um, let's say you smell smoke or a strange sound as you're walking through a dark parking lot to your car. <laughs> so it's not just where you decide where it goes, um, it's, it can get pulled immediately through your perceptions, through your senses, um, what you, or what's at hand, and that really does have an evolutionary factor to it for safety. We didn't always have uh, these four walls and a roof and security systems to alleviate some of our fears. So um, that's built in to us. And you only have one of these flashlights. So I mean, your flashlight meaning is your active focused attention. So basically don't multitask. <laughs> it's terrible for your performance, for your accuracy, for your mood. Your work and memory is limited and we don't always realize we're overloaded. So like when you blank out, you know, one minute you've got this brilliant idea and the next it's gone. Why? Well, one reason is that we mind wander with no awareness. You don't even know your mind's going somewhere else. Your flashlight gets pulled away and when you come back, that 30 to 60 second parameter of working memory, the whiteboard is blank. So distraction, whether it's external, the sights, sounds, or some other sensation, or internal, your thinking, your emotions, maybe you're, you're ruminating about the past, it writes, this distraction, it writes over whatever you are processing. So you blank out. And this uh, distractibility or mind wandering would be the technical way to describe it. Under periods of high demand, meaning you got to get something done, you know, like you're at the end of your academic semester as a student and the pressure's on your finals, or if you're an athlete and you're training for competition, um, and if this high demand is going over for multiple weeks, your attention is going to decline. Your attentional function is going to decline. So that's one thing we need to know. And this all highlights just how deeply intertwined working memory and attention are. A first practice I want to give to you is a simple form of meditation that's used to control, to, to narrow and steady your flashlight of attention. Uh, this is also known as focused attention. Keep your focus on a chosen object, such as the, sens the sensation of your breath. And that is um, historically, you're, you have it with you all the time. It's what you're doing. There's many sensations to it. You really don't break it down how you're breathing. It's the sensation of your breath. And, and you keep your focus on this when your attention wanders away from your breath or another object that you have chosen to focus on, you bring it back. And you continue to do this. These are the reps, the repetitions that strengthen your mental core. Talked about core strength, just like your, the uh, connections within your physical body. This is the connections in uh, your the biology of your brain, and you strengthen these connections, your mental core, and it enhances your working memory. This takes us into the second big system of attention, which is the exact opposite of this narrowing attention and privileging information and 
it's called the orienting system. And it, it, so that's it's orienting you in space. It's much more like a floodlight than a flashlight. And it, it's a broad receptive uh, quality, receptivity. It's not privileging anything, any information specifically. It allows whatever comes up to come up. Maybe it's privileging what's important right now, if you needed to think of that, it has that. And, and just like the flashlight, you can direct it internally and externally. You know, with the absence of sensory input, you're, you're in this receptive state where everything that's occurring internally, that you're have this heightened awareness. It's an acute and rich awareness within. And let's say you're driving down the road and you see a flashing yellow light. Maybe you're near some construction or near um, a school um, when they let the kids out or when they have that car line time. I remember those days. <laughs> so what does that mean? these flashing yellow lights, or you're driving down the street and a normal traffic light is now flashing yellow. And it means pay attention, but it doesn't mean that to anything is specific. It just means overall, something weird might happen, just be ready for it. And the practice to strengthen this system of being receptive is, is a little more advanced. Um, than the focused attention practice where you focus, you know, for example, on your breath and you train the skill of knowing when your mind's wandering and then bring it back to the attention to your object, in this case, your breath. This second meditation practice, it builds on that, your attentional stability. It builds on your ability to do that and the clarity that you achieve from that. And it trains this orienting system of attention. There's no particular target. It's about keeping watch. The challenge is different. Your attention is broad and receptive and observational. The aim with uh, this practice, which could be called insight or open monitoring, it's to maintain an open, curious, non-discriminating awareness of your moment-to-moment -moment experiences. You allow thoughts, emotions, sensations to come up and then pass away. This is a sort of mental training that builds uh, a heightened awareness, a meta-awareness of your thinking, your feeling, your perceiving, ultimately empowering your effectiveness, my effectiveness, and our fulfillment and sense of well-being. And I personally, I haven't done it a lot, but I have uh, uh, used these, uh, well, here where I live, it's called Float Spa, it's a really cool place. And they have these sensory deprivation chambers where your body's floating in this uh, Epsom salt water and you're in the dark and you're uh, receding from your physical senses. And there's a study on spontaneous initiation of thought, which in this state of receptivity, um, this spontaneous initiation of thought, you can call it creativity. I'm not sure about the source of the study, but it basically said, if you want to increase your creativity, to increase productive novel thought, and to, to be that way, then the floodlight needs to be on for the generation and then the acceptance of the thought that comes up. And they specifically mentioned that these sensory deprivation chambers may be a really great place to generate this, where you basically have more of this spontaneous thought. And 
you know, at first I was actually a little skeeved out about being in that water. Um, but I tried it knowing this, I had a free session pass. And then because I'm so excited to literally dive into this spontaneous creative environment, I bought a membership. Well, at least, you know, where you can go, uh, once a month. So you might try that in your area. All right. So, okay. You have a floodlight. What we started with, you have a flashlight, a floodlight. And the third system is called executive control, which, uh, is essentially the manager of the working memory. And it decides what is most relevant right now. Like, what should I pay attention to that should guide the way that I perceive and act? It's, it's doing all that subsampling of all the information coming in, and it's doing that um, with the reality at hand based on your goals. And if you know the term executive, this system's job in the term executive is like the way we talk about executives of a company where the job is to go in and not do every single task, but ensure that the goals of the organization and the behavior of the organization align. You inhibit irrelevant information. It's like, you know, your brain saying, you don't need to go think about that right now. It's a very complex system of juggling what directs your attention. Um, so because of that, none of these systems work alone. The executive control is telling with a flashlight where to go and the orienting systems telling you what's going on. And there's this fluidity that's always happening uh, throughout the systems. And we want the connectivity between them to be ultimately efficient and it ends up that people differ along their set points of these three systems. And this may be problematic where some are hyper-focused and I'm sure there's uh, terms in the uh, psychology area of science that have for hyper-focused and hyper-vigilant um, people getting anxiety from overwhelm, the broad receptive floodlight is, you know, is just too much. Everything's being sensed and some, you know, part of this attention network is not sorting that out very well. So you have these conditions and mindfulness training, meditation, has been shown to really uh, strengthen our systems of attention and help everyone on a daily basis, including people who have you know, specifically diagnosed conditions. And how, how do we, how is this even tested? You know, we could see the brains of meditators, areas of the brain before and after growing in those areas uh, that sustain attention. But in practical use, how, do, how is this even tested? Like, you know, once this was known. So let me give you an example of one of these kinds of basic attention tasks that scientists use to measure the effectiveness of meditation. There's a SART. Um, it's a test that shows a person's ability to sustain attention. So it, SART is Sustained Attention Response Task. And in this task, what they're trying to do is to see how people can stay on task and resist their own internal distractibility. So their mind will wander and they have to keep themselves on this task, which is really boring on purpose for, um, for these studies. So let's say you're sitting in front of a computer screen and you're part of this clinical study and you're going to see a number show up every half second or so or less. 
and you're told to press a button every time you see a number on the screen, a digit, except when that digit is three. And in those cases, you just don't press. So people do this and they found that people have a terrible time. <laughs> you know, the, the three only happens about 5% of the time. So you can imagine you're sitting there like press, 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 and the three appears and you press. And maybe you realize it, maybe you don't. And you're just, when you do realize it, you're like, why can't, <laughs> why did I just do this? And it's because the mind gets distracted and it's hard to pay attention when Things are long in duration and boring. And they gave this experiment to people who then went through a multi-week mindfulness training program. And then they gave the SRT, SART test again to them to see if there was any change in their performance. So this is a very stable task. But if you give this task without mindfulness training to people over and over again, there's usually no change. But this time with mindfulness training over some weeks, they saw an improvement. They were not pressing the three as much, which means they were not making as many mistakes. They're making less mistakes. That's a simple example, just a very simple example. But there's many other kinds of experiments that have been done where they look at these core attentional functions and find improvements. And what was determined is that there's a 10% measured improvement with people who meditated a lot, for example, um, at retreats. So putting people through a more regular mindful practice, um, rather than in these in-depth retreat situations, they did those tests and they saw benefits there too. Attention, now that we really have discussed how it works. Um, we ne need to know, and they're learning more and more, that it's extremely vulnerable in the laboratory context. They did more tests where they were doing, like for example, that simple digits task where you see the numbers and then press. They would throw in a, a random image, even negative, every now and then, and that was shown to have attention fall apart even more. They started making more mistakes when we started like being inundated with these other images. And like, you know, when you see number, number, and then a three, and you probably screw up and press it, and then you keep going, and every once in a while, a negative or something from the news, an image would be uh, put in there. Just that small manipulation, adding those things, the performance got worse. So with our world and being inundated with uh, things and us thinking that we're multitasking and managing these things, all of these things further deplete our attention. You know, so if you think about this, anything that is high demand and long in duration it's going to degrade your attention. The, the many groups, the many professions, whole category of people, emergency service professionals, military service members, first responders. Uh, I mean, in these cases, attention is life or death. You can't lapse in your attention. During surgery, a surgeon cannot mind wander. You know, in the military, you can just imagine that type of attention on demand being needed. And I say on demand uh, right now, and uh, you may have heard the word nootropics and other substances that really do, they've shown, can be great to enhance your attention. And they've definitely been shown to help. But... Increasing your alertness when you know you need to, like a presentation or uh, you need to take an a, a hour and a half time to study, you can prepare for that. But can you take something quick in a stressful situation and have it kick in when you need it? No. The studies on meditation practice show that mindfulness training armors you 
so that you have your attention online by default. It actually changes your brain. The default system that you come back to is in place. You are mindfulness by default. So the moral of the story, you have to have it embodied within you and it needs to be on demand in that moment. The result of Amisha Jha's years of studies is that 12 minutes a day is the answer to the question. The question, what is the minimum effective dose for me to benefit? I, I want to remind you quickly that the goal of this protocol of Amishi Jha's studies is to improve attention. There's many other programs out there incorporating meditation as part of a treatment plan uh, for multiple psychological disorders, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and they require more time and may need support from a clinician or medical professional. But this is a science-based tool for meditation in everyday life. The protocol is four weeks, five days a week, 12 minutes a day. Every study they did with mindfulness training, as long as they got to the 12 minutes, they benefit. 12 to 15 minutes, I believe was the range. And the more they did, the more they benefited. So that's the first thing to say here. It is like physical activity. You don't have to limit yourself to 12 minutes. It is enough of a load that it's helping. And now if you want to keep going, go for it. Double that, go for it. Um, so yeah, there's definitely people who have that immediate gratification. So you could do less and then there may be some nice benefit, but it might be temporary, like going for a walk would benefit you. But if you want to train for better heart health, you would want to do more than just an occasional walk. Um, for what does this mean for us for people out there living regular people how does this apply to our life I mean like how would you see it immediately in your life um, practical application day to day so it's it may be something as simple as not freaking out when you get cut off in traffic as a benefit from our working memory being improved, our awareness of the present moment being enhanced, and our attention systems working together more optimally. Yeah, you know, when you're working on a report, you're not on a group text. You're actually aware that maybe you're getting pulled in when your phone goes off and you bring it back to where you are right now and to what your goal is. Your interpersonal relationships you can really listen and see facial expressions. It changes the nature of the quality of the way we interact with other people. So it's, it's not just for improved ability to think your attention is now more available, um, but it helps you not to be in mental time travel, like back in the past or the future. You're here exactly when you want to be. Your emotions can be better regulated. Um, so it ends up showing up over and over again for everybody. And if, if anything, this just educates you about the nature of your attention. And so you understand what the vulnerabilities um, are that you're up against. And Mishi Jha, she recommends that you um, tie or yoke as a yogi. I love that word, yoke. Um, the minimum of 12 minutes of meditation to a regular daily activity. So it really does become a natural part of your day. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me because since adding just one more thing to my day, maybe you relate to that, it can feel impossible. There's just... It's just not possible. So there's so much every day competing for attention. So for meditation to work for you, you have to actually work it into your day. 
think of the brain's attention system as our mental cord. You need it pretty much for everything to do anything well. Like the body's physical core, it determines how stable and energetic and graceful we feel. I've uh, given you this focused attention and insight or open monitoring, floodlight, receptivity, practice. Uh, Each of those 12 minutes a day, they're effective exercises. Um, And with more repetitions comes greater coordination between these brain networks for attention, greater mental core strength. It it does take um, a commitment, a discipline, but I, I agree, 12 minutes a day is not a big ask for you to notice the day-to-day better quality of life. So here's the bottom line. If you engage in mindfulness training, you will feel better, but not simply from the practices alone. The practices will build your attentional capacity, and that will help you fully experience moments of joy, thrive in demanding circumstances, and in moments of crisis, you will successfully navigate moments of crisis with a a storehouse of resilience. There's a growing body of research now. The science is clear. And to the excitement of yoga and meditation practitioners, including me, meditation is becoming more accepted as a valuable mental workout. I really hope that you've found the mindfulness training practices and the science-based tools I've offered in this podcast valuable and helpful to your life. And all I'd like to say now is have a great workout.